If you uh, like ironic comedy, you probably enjoy our text this morning. As you know, we've begun a study of uh, the book of Exodus. We're working our way through that. Josh spent uh, uh, the first uh, two sermons uh, on chapter one. We continue really uh, still uh, introducing the story of, uh, of the Exodus uh, this morning. Uh, we're going to look, begin looking at the second chapter, and the passage we're going to look at is uh, verses 1 uh, through 10, but let's, uh, let's begin by praying together. Our God and our Father, we thank you that you have spoken, and you have spoken clearly in your word. We thank you that uh, we can come, and by the gift of your Spirit, we can comprehend and apply uh, this word. We pray, O Lord, for the presence of your Spirit this morning to give us understanding, to give us application. Lord, open your word to us and write it large upon our minds, upon our hearts, upon our wills. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to read with me the the first word of the passage, and then we're going to stop right there. Uh, It's the word now, the English word now. Uh, In Hebrew, it's the word and. Actually, actually in Hebrew, it's not the word and. In, In Hebrew, it's one single Hebrew letter that is prefixed to the next Hebrew word, uh, the first Hebrew word in, in the line. But it means and. It's a continuation of things. Uh, it doesn't show in the first chapter, in the first word of the first chapter of Exodus, but it's there in the Hebrew. Uh, so that the book of Exodus begins with the word and, which refers back to the immediately preceding stuff in the book of Genesis, since Exodus is the second book in this five-volume set we call the Pentateuch. It refers back to that, but, but actually through a series of those single letters, prefixes, uh, throughout Genesis, it refers all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And so when we come to chapter 2 uh, this morning uh, uh, and begin it, it begins with that and, meaning that it's continuing everything that was in the first chapter, which continued everything that was in the book of Genesis. We're in a continuing story, an ongoing story that doesn't end until you get to the 21st verse of the 22nd chapter of Revelation, the end of the book. It's all one story, and it's important for us to keep that in mind. So chapter 2 continues the story of chapter 1. What was chapter 1 about? Do you remember? At the end of chapter 1, or throughout, about the middle of chapter one to the end, <clears throat> it talks about this Pharaoh who didn't know Joseph. That uh, means he didn't care one whit about Joseph, that there was a Joseph, or what that might mean. <clears throat> he had his own agenda. And his agenda involved a problem he was having with these Hebrew immigrants. I mean, they were just growing and, you know, and growing and growing. Uh, uh, and it wasn't just that they were growing, they were, they were multiplying. They were growing geometrically, and uh, whatever that term is, and uh, he had to do something. So he began a program of enslavement, uh, which didn't do much. So then he 
he uh, introduced infanticide, and that didn't work. And so he uh, turned to genocide, as, as Josh pointed out last week. <clears throat> that word now, and, continues his story. Uh, so we read that it was in that period of time, the time of enslavement and infanticide and genocide, uh, that these two Hebrews meet and they marry. We're told that they're Levites. Uh, what we're not told here, but that we find out later, is that uh, they were nephew and aunt. He was the son of Levi. She was the sister of Levi. Now, before that freaks you out, totally, uh, and it should, but before it does so, uh, let, me, let me tell you a story about uh, when I was a kid, a little kid. I had a friend named Benny, and uh, Benny was the oldest son of his parents. He was the son of the oldest son of his grandparents. And he was born when his dad was still a teenager, about 18 or 19 years old. He got married. This was another age, you know, when I was little. Things were different. We married younger back then. And so, you know, they were young. And so about two or three years, I guess, after Benny had been born, lo and behold, his grandparents had a daughter. It was his aunt, who was two or three years younger than he was. So just the biological fact that she was his, uh, you know, his aunt, uh, it's very possible that she was younger than her husband. Uh, and it wasn't yet against the law. You know, Moses would introduce the law against, uh, uh, against that sort of marriage within the family. It's still weird. It's still weird. Uh, so that you understand we're dealing with a weird story. Uh, <clears throat> during that time, see, of, of, of genocide and all that other stuff going on, these two people marry. <clears throat> and then the story continues on there. Let, let's, uh, let, let's read it, follow along as I, I read it. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the river banks, and his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river, while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. 
So here's the summary. Three unnamed women, one a very young woman, six, eight years old, I guess, uh, joined forces to outwit an anonymous pharaoh uh, to preserve a baby Hebrew boy's life. And in the doing of that, uh, the pharaoh, who condemned all Hebrew baby boys to uh, death, wound up paying the boy's mother to be his wet nurse. And then, when he was weaned, she moves the baby boy into Pharaoh's own household, where he's raised under Pharaoh's own roof. How deliciously ironic. I mean, it's all right. Look, I know we're in a Presbyterian church, but you can laugh at that. It's funny. You know, it's funny how these unnamed women uh, just undo everything that Pharaoh has done. On top of what the two named women, the, the, uh, the two uh, that deliver midwives, uh, you know, in the first chapter did, when you have five women that just totally undo every plan that Pharaoh has made. That's funny. Uh, that's, that's ironic. And it's okay to laugh about it. Uh, but it does raise some questions. That's Roman number one. Uh, questions. Why don't they have names? Why is everybody anonymous? Because they're big players. They're playing a supporting role in this drama, in this story that's beginning to unfold. Why do we know the parents are Levites? We don't know their names, but, but we know they're Levites. We'll find that out later in Exodus as well. And, and when we do, you who are here this morning can say, ah, now I get it. And a third question. <clears throat> Peter Enns wrote a commentary on, on, uh, on Exodus. And he asked the question, what if he was ugly? What if mama looked at that baby and said, instead of, oh, he's fine? It's a stupid question, isn't it? What mother ever, ever said that? It's also because of what she said was, she said, what the Bible said, she saw him and saw that he was good. It's the very same language used in the book of Genesis when God looks on his newly created earth and says, it is good. It's that sort of good to this baby uh, that is the star of the show. Uh, why was his sister there looking on, watching <coughs> And how did she know to go up to the princess and say, hey, can I, uh, you know, can I go get a wet nurse and, and bring her? Pretty obvious. Mama told her. You know, Ma, Mama said what she was going to do. Uh, you stay there and you watch. And when the princess comes, you ask her this question. And she draws the baby out. You go up and you ask her. 
And she did well. She learned her role and she did it well. Did the mama know that the princess was going to be there? And if so, how? I would bet the family farm that she knew. And that's because I suspect that the princess was there regularly, if not every day, on certain days. And she came to the river to bathe, to a particular place, at a particular time. So the mama knew exactly when to put the baby in the basket in the river, where the princess would happen to be. Why did she go there to bathe? I don't know why she went there to bathe, but why was she bathing? Well, she could have been bathing for hygiene reasons. I would say, and I take about half the money I won from betting the family farm on the mama's instruction, and I put it on that she was, it was a ritual bathing that had to do with her religion. It had something to do with her presenting herself to the Egyptian gods. We'll find out more about that later when we find Pharaoh himself going down to the river. That's later on in the story. And then the last question, I guess. Why did the princess name him Moses? Well, dummy, you just read it. It's in the, you know, feel free to say that. It's there in verse 10. Because I drew him out of the water. And the word Moses in Hebrew sort of means something on that order. It's a, you know, it doesn't quite mean that, but it's close enough to where you stretch the meaning. It really means one who draws out of the water. But Moses wasn't one who draws out. He was one who was drawn out. And, uh, so anyway, she got close, and if she was indeed naming him with a Hebrew name, if she's an Egyptian, what do you expect? If she kind of fouls up uh, the, you know, the, the ending of a word uh, in Hebrew in a foreign language. But in, in Egyptian, that word, we translate Moses, means son. Make of it what you will. It's interesting. All of this is interesting. Not a bit of it is particularly important. But uh, adds some interest to the whole story, doesn't it? But there is one question that is of great importance. So important that we're going to leave Roman number one and go to Roman number two. This question gets its own Roman number. Where's God? Well, he's not named. He's not mentioned in, in the whole passage. And uh, so where is he? On the one hand, God was where he always is, where he's always been, enthroned in sovereign majesty on high, where he is and at this and every moment in the history of the world, in all of human history. And in your and my personal life histories as well. Watching, directing, ruling over the unfolding of his eternal plan for the world and for you and for me. Tony Merida has written, 
We may think that things are falling apart sometimes, but remember God's mysterious providence. God works out his perfect will in amazing ways. And then he says, trust him. On the other hand, though, I believe God was there, right there among them. He was there in the faith of Moses' parents. Hebrews eleven twenty three, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith. By faith, she took that basket and put tar and bulrushes or whatever that is, uh, you know, things that were growing out in the, in the water, papyrus maybe, I guess, and, and, and she waterproofed the basket, she hoped, and she day came and she put the baby in the basket, and she put the basket and the baby in the water by faith, by faith. She's pretty sure the princess would be there, pretty sure the princess would see But what would the princess do? But what else could she do? What else could the mother do? The child would soon be discovered. And and, and the Pharaoh had given to the entire populace not only the right but the duty to kill him. There are those times in our lives. And what else are you going to do? So much of our lives we live, this is going to sound, sound blasphemous, we don't need faith. We just go our merry way. Everything's working. Everything's going well. Everything's fine. And then, there comes that time, that point, there is nothing you can do but trust God. And in faith you act. It delivers you from fear. It enables you to do something that you don't have it within yourself to do. And she did it. Like the Hebrew midwife, she and her husband didn't fear the king. They feared God. And they acted And they committed the child not to the basket, not to the river, not even to the princess, but to the living God. God is there, I think, as well in the heart of the princess, of that pagan Egyptian princess. Who else could work compassion in that woman's heart, the daughter of the Pharaoh that had ordered the killing of these children. Who else but God? Only a sovereign God who had planned to use that baby boy to deliver his people and make them into a holy nation. So God's there, you see, working all things together for good to those that love him and are called according to his purpose. You see it working out there. All of which brings us to Acts 7. Stephen 
is giving the speech for which he'll be stoned to death. Early on, he says, and God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be sojourners in a land belonging to others, uh, Abraham's offspring, uh, would be... uh, would be sojourners in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And then you jump over about 10 verses and you come to this. As the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And then the important part. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians And he was mighty in his words and deeds. God was there orchestrating all this stuff. And this little baby in the basket is taken home by the princess and introduced to Pharaoh's household so that he would learn about Pharaoh's house, so that he would learn about Pharaoh's government. He'd know the workings inside and out. He'd need that. And he's brought into Pharaoh's house so he would receive the absolutely best education available, possible in the entire world. There in Egypt. He'd need it. He would need it. He was taken into Pharaoh's household so that he would be equipped to accomplish what God had for him to do, which was to deliver his people out of bondage and establish them as a nation Israel, out of which would come the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Do you see it? That's where God was. Busy in everything you read happening in these ten verses. Which brings us to Roman numeral three. The baby in the basket points us toward the baby in the manger. Manger is too polite a word. The baby in the feed trough. Because there's no place else to put him. Up here in the front of the Bible, in the beginning part, the introduction to the second volume of these five books we call the Pentateuch, we're reminded again, I mean, it's been throughout since the third chapter of the book of Genesis, that God is a redeeming, delivering, saving, reconciling God. Peter ends uh, in his commentary, reminds us of God's use of conception and birth in the history of redemption. 
as Abraham and Sarah and the son of promise, Isaac. I mean, they were older than I am. And they're having a baby. That strikes fear in a man's heart right there. (laughs) And Isaac marries Rebekah. And they have twins. Out of the twins comes Jacob, who fathers 12 tribes of people. As Jacob and Rachel and Joseph, who's the reason Israel is in Egypt now when we're reading. There's Hannah and her son Samuel. And then there's Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And there's Boaz, her redeemer, who takes her. And with her has Obed. Obed would be the grandfather of King David, whom Samuel would anoint as king, who is the one through whom would come Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, Savior of the world. See, the baby boy in the basket, I mean, we know the story of Exodus. We know what's going to happen. He's going to deliver Israel, the Hebrews, from slavery. baby boy in the feed trough would redeem, deliver, save us. His church that you and I might be eternally reconciled to the God from whom our sin had estranged us. That's where this story eventually takes us. And this is where I should end, but I got one more thing to say. One more thing. Don't miss it. You and I are part of the story. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, you're a redeeming God, a saving God, a reconciling God, a loving God. You work in such strange ways. All to this end, to save a people who don't deserve it. How good you are. What a great and merciful and gracious and loving God. You preserved the life of the baby boy that you might use him. And then there was your baby boy 
whose life you took as a sacrifice for our sin. That we might be reconciled to you. That we might be here in this place this morning as brothers and sisters in Christ loved in an unfathomable way by our God. Oh Lord, thank you for the story. May we revel in it. May we rejoice in it. May we celebrate it today and every day. For Jesus' sake, amen.